You're listening to Tin Pod Radio. I'm Adam P. Nave, co-writer of The Once and Future Queen. Welcome to Shortlisted, the podcast where we take a top 10 list from the internet and talk about it for 60 minutes. We just set a timer, talk for an hour, and then shut up whether or not we've made it through the list. We're not exactly racing the clock. We're just shortlisting the facts. All right, so... I feel like the first two are the worst, and then the rest of them will get through just fine. (laughs) (laughs) The first two are like evil people, but all right, so here we go. Um, This week, we are doing 10 people who survived your worst nightmares. All right, so there are certain sets of circumstances, should you ever find yourself in them, where the most reasonable course of action is to reflect on what a good life it has been and prepare to check out. We all like to hear nail-biting stories of those who beat the odds and managed to overcome certain death, but these stories are, of course, highly statistically unlikely, and that's why it's called certain death. As for the following people, they decided statistics be damned. They weren't going to be the one. Or they were, yeah, they weren't going to be the one. Um, These average everyday people found themselves in situations that are normally only survived by waking up from the nightmare, and yet they're still with us today with some pretty harrowing tales to tell, and probably PTSD, but that's me adding on to the story. Um, And this is by Mike Floorwalker on, what are we on, Listverse again. All right, number 10. Also, this list is international, and so I'm going to butcher every single name in the entire article. All right, so this is Michelina Lewandowska, I think. Um, She's a Polish immigrant to the UK, and she described for a British court in January of 2012 the terror that she felt as she laid buried in the ground, her hands and feet bound in a taped-up cardboard box, slowly suffocating. During my time inside my shallow grave where I was buried alive, I feared that my life was at an end and I was going to die. I prayed to God to help me survive so that I could look after my young son. And this referred to her then three-year-old son that she shared with her fiancé, Marcin Kasprzak, the man who had buried her alive. After having grown bored of Michelina, Kasperzak and his younger friend, Patrick Boris, hatched a plan to get rid of her. Marcin attacked her with a stun gun, once to get her on the ground and once for a long period. And then he and his friend bound her wrists and ankles and tied her up, apparently trying to figure out what to do with her for the next several hours before finally stuffing Michelina into a cardboard box and driving off into the wilderness to bury her alive under four inches of earth and a 90-pound tree branch. Incredibly, Michelina used her engagement ring to cut loose of her bonds as she was buried in the shallow grave and then to claw her way out. She had difficulty walking and breathing for weeks after the attack and doubtless still has nightmares. But on her testimony, her attackers were both sentenced to 20 years in prison. I don't know why, but the whole being tied up and buried thing made it even worse for me. Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess because if you're buried alive, but at least you still have your hands you could maybe get out, like you could dig yourself out, but then tied up. You don't even have that. No. And the whole engagement ring thing makes it like kind of badass because she's like this asshole ring from this guy and I'm cutting it. <laughs> yes. Yes. The one person who like tried to kill me and now I'm going to use the thing he gave me to save myself. But ugh, ugh. there are so many episodes like this in crime dramas. Like this is a really popular thing to put one of the main characters in a coffin or a shallow grave and like bury them alive unconscious. And then they wake up in this little tiny space and it's just awful. And I hate it. I, I'm not claustrophobic, but oh my goodness, I would I would really hope that I could die very quickly. Yeah, I've watched enough SVU in my life to see enough of those. Right, right. Yeah, that, mm-mm. When my little sister, so my little sister, the one that's like right under me, is, um, she is pretty claustrophobic. And when she was really little, we tied her in a sleeping bag. We would trick her into like getting into it head first, and then we would tie the bottom. We didn't know that, you know, she had like a genuine fear. We just thought it was funny because she screamed a lot. <laughs> We were pretty evil, but now looking back at that, I'm like, I am so sorry I ever did that to you. That was horrible. At least it ends well with her attackers going to jail or to prison. Yeah, I mean, 
and the whole thing about somebody attacking you that that is close to you, like I think right. even, even in abusive relationships, like you don't think somebody would go that far to do something like that. Well, right, and it sounds like it was just like he was just bored. Like it, she didn't do anything to him. Nothing happened. He just was done, which. <sighs> That's horrible. And what is up with his friend? Like, what kind of friend is like, oh, yeah, I'll help you kill your fiancé. That's cool. Yeah, like, oh, I don't know. It's it's weird. And the wording of it was weird, like you said, because it was like, because he was bored with her. Right. <laughs> just bored. Just bored. So I'm going to lock her up right. or something. I don't know. It's even right. like uh, the comedy. I don't know if you watched the show, uh, the Kimmy Schmidt thing on Netflix. Mm-mm. Mm-mm, and- I haven't. It's 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 really really funny. It's got John Hamm in it too. But it's about this uh, cult leader who, who takes these young women and he has them in his underground bunker. Ugh. Uh huh. Until they this can't go well. Yeah. Until one of them escapes and then everybody finds out about it. It's a really fun show because she she doesn't understand a lot of modern stuff because she grew up down there. Oh. Uh huh. But it like. It's just creepy the fact that somebody would do it, and that happened. Where was it? Was it Georgia? Like a couple of years ago, where that guy had had those women. Oh yeah. Well, and then I don't know. I feel like there are so many stories that I didn't realize this was a real thing outside the movies. But like, people do that. They keep other people confined for like generations, and yeah. I've, that's insane. I can't believe that exists in the real world. I can't believe that's possible in the real world. Yeah, and then you find out somebody was like, like just locked up forever somewhere or something like that. Yeah. 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 And then they had kids down there, and the kids have never even been outside, or the kids have never, you know, met any people outside the family, or it's just terrible. Yeah, I'd recommend that the uh, the Kimmy Schmidt show on Netflix. It's a Netflix show, mm-hmm. but it, I mean, it, it it has that dark element because she was like captured by it. But John Hamm from Mad Men is really funny in it too. So is it primarily a comedy? Yeah, it is a comedy. Oh, okay. It so just, even even though it starts out really horrific. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Like, like they find out that the the other girls find out that he was like leaving the bunker all alone and like watching TV and all this other stuff, but. It, it, it is really funny, though. Interesting. Okay, I'll have to look into that. I just finished um, the last episode or the last season of Criminal Minds that's on Netflix, so now I have to do something for the rest of the year until we get more. <laughs> so <laughs> I will be looking for shows for sure. So, all right, we're ready for number nine. Yep. This one is also terrible and also speaks to my like crime crazy heart. <laughs> So this one is about Holly Dunn, whose name I am pretty confident I said correctly. So Holly Dunn, it says, when Holly Dunn and her boyfriend, Chris Mayer, were approached by a strange looking man asking for money late on the night of August 29th, 1997, they were a little spooked and they had reason to be. The man's name was Angel Resendez. And at the time he had already killed six people and he would go on to kill many more. Resendez found the couple chatting by some train tracks a few blocks away from a party they had just come from. Producing an ice pick, he was able to get both Holly and Chris tied up and stashed in a ditch. After repeatedly checking to make sure he had not been seen, he returned to bludgeon Chris to death with a 50-pound rock. Holly was then raped, stabbed in the neck with the ice pick, and beaten so severely that she was practically unrecognizable, at which point she mercifully passed out. After awaking to find her attacker gone, Holly dragged herself to the nearest house and was taken to the hospital with a shattered eye socket, a broken jaw, among other injuries. She was able to recover, and she testified against Resendez at the trial that saw him convicted and sentenced to death, a sentence that was carried out in 2006. Angel Resendez, the railway killer, murdered at least 15 people over 13 years, and Holly Dunn is is the only one of his victims to survive. This right away reminded me a little bit of uh, the Zodiac Killer, Mm because I think there's like one case of one person who basically got away from him, but I don't even think they were attacked. It turned out like like they met him, and he tried to get them to do something, and then they they were like, no, we're not going to do that. uh, Right. Yeah. Yeah, like they just they had a creepy feeling and got out of there before they were in danger. I, it's horrible that I mean, a lot of these in this list, like the person survived, like we were talking about before we started, um, the person survives and that's awesome. And like, you know, kudos to them and 
thankfully they did, but whoever they're with or all the other people, like everybody just dies. Like it's still a super, super tragic story. Like her boyfriend did not make it out alive. I, I also, go go ahead. ahead. (laughs) Uh, This goes back to like the thing I've heard from some police people uh, at times where like, it's better not to go with somebody if something happens. Like it's better to like to fight because if you go with them, you're probably going to be dead anyways. Right. And if you fight and they kill you right there, at least I guess people can find you. I don't know. I've had people approach uh, like me and Mar or me by myself, like out in public, and your first thought is like, okay, is this person killing me or something? Right. Well, you know, my husband and I were talking about like when you're a woman and you're alone, at like out in public or in a city or when it's dark or whatever. And, you know, we were talking about like the, the carrying the keys between your finger tricks so that if somebody grabbed you, you could like stab them with the keys or whatever. And he, I think, was a little bit surprised that like, Everyone I know does that every single time the sun goes down and they're by themselves or every time they're in a strange place and they're by themselves. And But, you know, there's – I don't know if it's – there are so many horrible people that might get you or if it's that everyone knows that there could be a horrible person that might get you, but it's scary. Well, it's one of those natural things women have to think about because and men don't know that a lot of times about them. Women are targets a lot of times. Yeah. And uh, it's even creepier when you find out the fact that not only are women targets, but women women who are pregnant are bigger targets too. Oh, sure. In any state of vulnerability, but like, right. I, it's it reminds me of the harassment thing. Like if a woman's by themselves, they'll get harassed. But a man's with them, a lot of times they won't. Like yeah. Like even somebody like me, I'm not like a big intimidating guy but i've seen people get mad at mar somewhere for like a car thing or something like that and then they see me and they back off and i've noticed that and it's right like, and then when she's been by herself she's had people scream at her and follow her home and shit like that right but it's awful like yeah i mean as somebody that used to walk a lot like when i first moved to florida and i didn't have a vehicle when i walked down here i was constantly mm-hmm. thinking like somebody jumps out of bushes somebody does this or and i've been robbed right. before too so it's like <laughs> oh goodness yeah see i've never been like i did have my credit card information stolen like two weeks ago that was another part of my excellent like past several weeks have just been fantastic but um not like directly i've never had anyone directly confront me and try to take something from me or hurt me or whatever so i guess i've been super lucky but i still think about it all the time i probably doing crime crazy and even like this list doesn't help <laughs> But it's still always in the back of your mind. So, all right. Well, let's move on to something that is also depressing but doesn't involve crime. (laughs) Number eight is Alcides Moreno. So Alcides and his brother Edgar were window washers, and they worked together on a Manhattan high-rise on Manhattan high-rise buildings for years. The job obviously carries certain certain risks. I can't talk today. And in December 2007, those risks became horrifying reality as the rig that they were working on became disengaged and plummeted 47 stories, almost 500 feet into into an alleyway. Firefighters arrived to find Edgar deceased and his brother, Alcides, alive, conscious, and sitting up. Investigators theorized that Alcides was able to sort of ride the platform, using it to help slow his descent, and as doctors noted that he didn't hit his head or break his pelvis upon landing, the two things most likely to cause fatal complications in a fall. Alcides was rushed to the emergency room that day with injuries to his spine and brain, shattered limbs, fractured ribs, in short, everything you'd expect to see from someone who just fell 500 feet onto the pavement, except for lack of pulse. The doctors uh, expected his recovery to take a year or more, but he was pretty much recovered and already making the rounds on morning talk shows by June, six months later. Alcides' days as a window washer are over, but his days of life should be plentiful to the astonishment of literally everyone. Moreno's lead doctor said that the fall from three story said that falls from three stories and above are very difficult to survive, and that Alcides' treatment had taken his team into new medical territory. Above ten stories, most of the time we never see the patients. He said because they usually go to the morgue. Usually goes flat, probably. Yeah, well, and that's probably what happened to his brother, which is horrifying to think about. Yeah, but I, man. I, yeah, I have an uncle who 
well, he's deceased now, but he used to uh, paint, I mean, not paint, but clean the windows in Houston on the big high-rise buildings and stuff like that. And he used to tell stories, and I'm like, no way. Right. Well, and isn't it, I mean, because the higher up you go and there's nothing around you, I would think it would be really windy and there'd be a lot more movement than you might think there would be. Like, it just, ugh. Well, it's like the Skywalker people who build those things. Like, they're walking across sure. the platforms and stuff like that. I don't know. It's, like, it's insane. I don't know. There's some sort of food delivery, like, restaurant that delivers, like, pizza or something commercial like that that I saw recently where they were serving food to people that were, like, I don't know, 100 stories up and pretending to, like, eat lunch on a beam in the middle of the air and just, like, no, no, mm-mm, nope. No amount of money. There's no way. I would never do either of those things. Well, it's like that famous photo of New York City of them building, I think the Empire State Building of the workers all just sitting on a beam eating lunch because, you know, they can't come down. So, right. So they're just sitting. It's like a really famous photo. But it's right. Like, I, could, I couldn't do that. I mean, I'm not really afraid of heights, but I'm like. I'm but not, you're smart enough to know yeah, you might die. Yeah. And <laughs> I, I'm not the most nimble person in the world, even though I played sports in college and stuff like that. Like, mm-hmm. no. Mm-mm. Yeah, that just, ugh, ugh. We were at the Science Museum this morning, and they have all kinds of, it's a very hands-on thing. We had our kids with us, and they had a blast. And one of the things they had was, um, like, practicing tightrope walking. And so they had a, a cord, a rope, that was strung from, like, to, it wasn't very long. It was, like, maybe, I don't know, 15 feet or something. And you could practice walking across it. And, of course, it's only, like, four inches off the ground, I couldn't walk on it, and there was no wind. There was no, like, there there was no fear of like falling and hurting myself, and I still couldn't even come close. Like one or two steps, and I fell off every time. I can't imagine doing that like between buildings or even in a circus tent. It's just crazy. They have this one place down here, and I'm blanking on the name of it. But if you ever see a a, a building in in Orlando and it's upside down. Like, the actual building, it was made to look like it was upside down. Like, it crashed or whatever. Uh, Uh Uh-huh. But they have, it's like kind of like a game museum type place and stuff. But it has Mm -hmm. a thing in the arcade part of it where you can walk a rope around the top of it. It's like basically above the arcade. And Uh. and it's not only, it's darker, but, I mean, you got like, uh, like a hook from a rope you're attached to a line and everything but i found that really hard to do like just to even walk it even though i was attached to something so is there anything to keep your balance or is it just that if you fall it's okay no it's just uh well you're hooked onto that rope so it's kind of tight the rope above you gotcha so so you hold that the whole time as you're walking but for the most part the rope isn't like the one you're walking on isn't like completely stiff so right it's hard to walk on and stuff like sure that. is it wonderworks is that what the place is yeah, called I think it is wonderworks i googled it i oh, i'm not okay. <laughs> <laughs> i can't take credit for that one it does you're right it looks exactly like the building fell out of the sky it's even got like pavement on the roof yeah, and after the recent and hur- a tree. After the recent hurricane, people were like, "Man, Irma was bad. Look at this building." <laughs> oh my gosh! Picked <laughs> <laughs> it up and flipped it over. Yep, that's Florida hum- humor during a hurricane. Like people were talking right. about that. If you ever go to Orlando, I recommend checking it out. It's pretty fun. It's neat looking. Oh, and also down here. Uh, there's a Titanic exhibit, but right beside it, there's a CSI exhibit. Ooh. And you get to go and do, because it's based off the TV show, you get to do a case. And you get to oh. do these clues and everything like that and go around and try to solve the case and stuff. And it's digitally done and everything. It's really cool. That's very cool. You know me too well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We're going to move on. Number seven. <laughs> Ken Henderson. All right, longtime friends Ken Henderson and Ed Cohen were on a fishing trip in the Gulf of Mexico in March 2012 when their 30-foot boat started to fill up with water. Henderson tried to pump some of the water out, but it had taken them too long to notice. Salt water sprayed everywhere, killing the pumps. There was no response on their radio, no signal on Henderson's cell phone, and just after grabbing some life jackets and a few supplies, the boat vanished beneath them into the ice-cold water. 
And there they remained for over 30 hours. They talked to each other or to keep each other distracted. They huddled together to conserve body heat and they fought and fought fatigue, dehydration and the bitter cold for as long as they could. Henderson decided to make a last ditch effort, a solo swim toward the distant oil rig when it became apparent that Cohen, a slender man, was having serious trouble. Ken almost didn't make it. He became disoriented and almost got off course, and he began hallucinating trees made out of ice under the surface of the water. After finally stumbling aboard the rig at about two in the morning, a day and a half and over 50 miles from where the boat sank, Ken was able to find a galley with a phone and call his wife, who alerted the Coast Guard. It was they who discovered Ed Cohen's lifeless body a short time later, but there would have been two bodies to find if not for Ken Henderson's valiant effort. Uh, I've I've been in one boating accident and it's kind of scary, like when you're out in the middle of nowhere. But we yeah we were able to get back on the boat. We all got knocked off of it, kind of. Oh, uh, but it's always scary when you're out in the middle of nowhere on a boat or anything. Sure, my husband was on our friend's boat. Um, I don't know. It was it was cold. It was in Tennessee, and it was like maybe the very end of the summer, beginning of fall or the very, very early spring, like they were, they had just gotten the boat back in the water. Or they were just about to take it out, whatever. Anyway, they had been maybe draining the ballast or something. Something was open in the boat and they had forgotten to close it. And so my husband is out on the boat, sort of in the middle of the lake and it's just slowly sinking. And he's like, I, um, someone, hello. But it was a very small lake. And so it was no big deal. Like they just went out there and got him and it was fine. But Oh, even that like gives me the heebie-jeebies. I wouldn't want to. <laughs> Certainly not in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. In I March. Mean, I mean, I've been on little bass boats and little, uh, little just plain paddle boats and like accidentally like you know capsized or something like that on a lake and that's scary. But like you can see land most of the time on a lake. You know what I mean? Right. 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 So if you had to swim or float there's a good chance that you're going to be okay. Yeah. I guess unless it's freezing. Yeah, that's true. And then you got to, you know, hang on to the door and not be stupid like in Titanic. Right. <laughs> right. Let both people up on the door. Plenty of room. <laughs> Uh, yeah, like, I, I mean, where I'm from, like, we went boating and went fishing a lot and stuff, mm -hmm. and there, there was lots of times where we had stuff happen, but I've been, since I've been in Florida, I've been on a couple of fishing boats, and I had one run out of gas one time, and we had to wait until Coast Guard got there, which took forever, mm -hmm. and, and, like, that was even scary in itself, just being out there setting and thinking, like, is anybody going to come after us? Right, right. How long am I going to be stranded here? Do I have enough water? Yeah, because the, the guy on the boat, we were – either his radio didn't work right or we were too far out, but he was able to get a signal out, but we couldn't hear if anybody heard our signal. Oh, yikes. So that yeah. Was, yeah, that was kind of scary to find out what was going on and stuff like that. But Right. So did they tow you or did they bring you gas? How does that work? They came and assessed the situation to find out what was going on. And they, I think what happened, they ended up leaving somebody with him because there was some kind of issue with he didn't have a permit ride or something like that. Oh. And then they took us to shore and stuff. I mean, But they left him out on the boat? Yeah. The oh. Well, no, they left somebody with him because – Oh, think, okay. I right. Think, I think he might have got arrested for something. Oh. But to tell a totally random story, the first time I ever came to Florida, I flew in with a friend of mine when I was in high school to go scuba diving mm -hmm. off the coast. And we got on the boat, and it seemed friendly. There was a guy and a girl and that were running the boat, and it seemed friendly. We were going to go out scuba diving and fishing and i got back from scuba diving i got up you know i got on the boat and i was taking my stuff off and i went to the top of it to like you know rest and everything and there was a lady <laughs> up there doing drugs on the top of the boat oh no yeah. you're like uh it's like something out of miami vice or something you know oh lady right bikini sitting there snorting cocaine oh my gosh <laughs> you're like i can't like just leave this is not a situation where i can walk away and that my whole thought was like you know a horror film or something like that these people are going to mm. kill us and like we're going to get used as bait or something <laughs> oh my gosh <laughs> that was totally uh, that was scary but the people weren't acting weird but i was right. putting everything into my head and making it be that it was weird well sure because if that was happening in any sort of like 
crime drama, it doesn't end well for you. No. <laughs> in any other situation, like if that happens out somewhere where you're like, you know, I don't know, riding motorcycles somewhere with people, you just leave. Like I couldn't just right. leave. <laughs> right. I'm like, oh, wait, this party's over. Let me just go get in my car and drive home. Nope. You're stranded. Ugh. Yeah, I don't know what you do. I guess you just smile and look the other way and then That's basically ask what I to did. go back to shore. I don't and then I was Gosh, afraid what awfully, if we huh? get arrested, you know, like when we come back right. to shore, I mean, when we come back to the dock, there was like, you know, there's Coast Guard and the police there all the time at these docks mm-hmm. and places. I was like, oh, am I going to get arrested because I'm with these people? And Right. And I, I swear I had no idea. I just wanted to look at the pretty fish. Yep. Uh, huh. Yeah, that sounds like fun. <laughs> <laughs> Remind me not to get in a boat with you either. Like... A few episodes ago, we learned I shouldn't eat when you're eating. Like, we shouldn't go out to eat together. You're going to eat weird stuff. We're also not going boating together. Oh, I think I told you this before when we were talking about the food. The fact oh, that no. I was scuba diving once and there were sharks above you. And there was above me. Like, when I was scuba diving, which was pretty cool, they were just swimming above me. And stuff. Yeah. That was the same trip. Oh, yeah. Because I thought, like, I'm going to end up being shark food or something. Right. <laughs> hey, that leads really well into number six, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So this guy's not shark food, um, which I'm I'm happy to say that neither of us are either. However, Richard Moyer was something else's food. Richard Moyer began the morning of October 3rd, 2011, like any other. He got up. He let out his dog, Brindy, who dashed off into the Pennsylvania woods surrounding their home. But as he turned to go back in the house, Brindy returned hurriedly and unexpectedly with the gigantic black bear chasing her. The bear really, really hated Brindy and anyone involved with her. It literally broke down the door and stormed into the house after the dog, attacking Richard and waking up his wife, Angela. She tried to intervene and quickly discovered that stopping a bear attack is a bit of a double-edged sword as the bear turned on her. This prompted the dog to leap onto the attacking animal and Richard Moyer to shrug his shoulders and do what any husband would do. What are you going to do? I kept my head down and I just... Leapt onto the bear, he said, and that's when the bear got really mad. It mauled the hell out of him, chewed on his head for a little while, and then, amazingly, simply stopped, went out onto the front porch, and sat down. While the damage from the bear's claws was extensive, the gnaw job on the back of Richard's head required 37 staples to close. Husband and wife were both home from the hospital by the end of the day, probably eager to tell their story to their 10-year-old son, who had slept through the whole thing. Uh, do they have bears where, like, where you're at? Um, so there are bears not too far from where I live, and but not usually. Like we don't see them. But recent, well, not recently. A couple years ago, we had a small black bear that I don't know where it came from, but it was in our neighborhood. People saw it in their yards. Like, and I live in a a pretty big like subdivision. There are lots of houses here and it was just all in this area. We're we're like a mile and a half from a city park that's like or the county park that's the reservoir. And so I think it was probably hanging out in the woods there because there's quite a bit of land there. But but not usually, no. <laughs> <laughs> like where I'm from, because I'm from up in the mountains, literally. Like, right. When I say I'm a hillbilly, it's literally in the hills. Where, <laughs> <laughs> like, my house is on top of a, a a huge hill, and like you have to drive down this steep hill to get off of it and everything. So we got we get a lot of bears around there, just naturally. Like, so mm-hmm. like you can't leave out dog food. You got to mm-hmm. keep garbage put up and all that stuff. And one of my neighbors one time came out to feed his dog and a bear like reared up on him on its back legs like right on his porch and it knocked his front door down because he shut the door and it knocked his front door down but he was able to hide in the house but when they came the police and everybody came after he called them like the bear was just sitting in the middle of his living room oh my gosh (laughs) see i think that's the scariest part or like the first scary part about this story is that it can get into the house like you think well that's okay i'll go close my door like you know, doors are big and strong and man-made, and I'll be fine inside my house. But then when the bear comes in the house, that's a problem. Yeah, I'm going to be attacked by a panda. They can't even walk straight without tumbling. There you go. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, um, I'm really glad that the 10-year-old in this story did not come in because he would have 
that would have just been tragic. Like, you know that would have ended poorly. Yeah, I just pictured the dog at the beginning, though, like, running away and the dog being like, you're on your own and running in the house. Right. <laughs> right. Well, it was, too. It was letting uh, Richard get whatever he needed to get. It wasn't until uh, Angela got involved that the dog was like, oh, man, I got to save her. <laughs> It's like, my food here. It's like, these people right. give me food. <laughs> right. That's my mom. <laughs> wow. uh, but bears are scary, period. Like, I mean, I've been fishing before, and they'd be on the on the bank, and you basically have to wait for them to leave and stuff. So. Right. Yeah, I, it's one of those things that I guess I never think about, but I'm sure, like, seeing one would just be a whole lot more intimidating than you imagine it would be. Because they're big, and they're, like... Yeah powerful and strong and i had an uncle once that claimed like because you can hunt bears at certain times of the year well you used to be able to i don't know if you still can i don't know what the rules are now where i'm from in virginia but he claimed he shot a bear like hunted it and shot it and my dad mm. was with him and my dad always used to call him out and said you didn't hunt that bear that bear ran at you and you scared shot shot it while it <laughs> ran at you that's how it you died. screamed and pulled the trigger. Yeah, that's all that happened. And my uncle used to get so mad because he had it stuffed and in his living room. It's like huge freaking bear. And my dad was like, you didn't hunt that bear. You shot it scared <laughs> to death. <laughs> you peed a little and then you pulled the trigger. And I'm pretty sure you screamed like a girl. Yeah, I've been, uh, I've been hunting also before and seeing them. And my dad just taught me, like, just be quiet. They'll just go on by. The only thing right. I worry is if you see a cub. Right. Right, because then it's going to be protective. Yeah. Ugh, ugh, ugh. Um, when we were in high school, I went with my husband out to see his family, and they live on a mountain. They actually own, like, the whole mountain in Oregon, and there's nothing out there. It's just them. They raise, like, their chickens, and that's what they eat, and they just stay on this mountain. And we were having pizza one night that they had made. And I was like, this is really good. And I don't like, I've not ever had this kind of pepperoni before. It's really like spicy and really good. Like what's different about it? And they're like, oh, it's a bear. <laughs> just We just stuck a bear on your pizza and didn't tell you about it. It's cool. Yeah, I've had it a little bit, but not enough to really get a taste of it. I've had like little bits of it. Mm -hmm. And it, well, it was really salty when I had it, so I don't know. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm sure that pepperoni is not like a good indicator of what bear tastes like, but it did make really good pepperoni. <laughs> so. Well, that's another story you have with eating weird stuff. You ate bear. I did. Well, at one point in my life, I was like, okay, how many different kinds of animals can I eat? But it didn't last long because I'm too chicken to eat most kinds of animals. <laughs> so it was a very limited list. It was like, well, I ate a duck and I ate a chicken and <laughs> I'm good now. <laughs> Those are normal things, Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't eat a duck until I was in my 20s. That was the first time I'd ever even had duck. So it's kind of pitiful. <laughs> duck is really good, though. It is. Yeah. So we have, a like, a Thai place that fixes it. And sometimes it is so good, and it's, like, the best thing you've ever eaten. And sometimes it's, like, oily and gross, and it's just – and it's the same dish. I think it just depends on who's cooking it and what day of the week it is. And yeah, so it's it a little hit or miss, but – it's kind of like a rabbit. It's about the same way. Oh, I've had rabbit too. Yeah. I had rabbit teriyaki when I was little. Yeah, that's like, yeah. But, but rabbit, nah, I don't know. Maybe we should yeah. do another, another food episode so you can get sick again. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess it's only fair since this one's like full of crime. Uh, we'll just go back and forth like every other week. Like I'll just always choose crime and you can always choose food and <laughs> we'll be at home every other every other month thing about the food one though is that actually there was another one that I was like no I don't want to do that one because it also included a couple of cannibalism stories oh my goodness yeah we did a cannibalism episode on crime crazy but um wine and crime did one recently that oh my goodness I have never listened to something and like had to turn it off because I thought I was gonna actually be sick it was so graphic and so gross it was oh it was insane y'all's one was the y'all's cannibal one which i don't remember which number it was but uh that was the first one i listened to y'all's podcast oh yeah gosh was, i'm almost sorry about that <laughs> and i was at, i think it was five or six yeah i was at work cooking 
Oh, no. <laughs> I remember that. I was at work cooking when that happened. Because I remember texting your Twitter account, and I was like, yeah. sitting here cooking, and I'm listening to this. And whoever, I mean, I my mean, vets. And, and whoever responded was like, uh, sorry. <laughs> right. It was probably me. I'm the, I'm the Twitter person. Jordan does the Instagram. I've got Twitter. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we weren't cooking pork, were you? Long pig. <laughs> I forgot. Oh, actually, I think I was doing a bunch of hamburgers, so it's like a big fat oh, hamburger. <laughs> right. Oh, gross. Chopped up like you don't even know what it is for sure. You just think it's a cow. It could be anything. I have a friend who's a science teacher. She's like a super scientist. Like that's just her thing. And um, her opinion is just kind of like I'm not going to go out and kill a person and eat them. But if that was something that was done, I don't have any problem doing it. Like just eating a person that that concept doesn't bother her. I guess she just sort of sees it as like, we're just an animal like any other animal. Like, why should that be a thing? I don't know. Well, the only problem with people eating people is the problem with any animal eating any animal. I mean, that's why you got mad cow disease. It was from feeding cow to cow. Right, that's right. That's how it came about was that they were doing that on farms. They were feeding cow to cow. That there's problems with uh, every animal that they eat the other animal. I think it can develop issues with it because that's one of the things that kind of signal like maybe we ain't supposed to do that. You know? <laughs> right. Well, in the wine and crime episode, though, they talked about some research that I don't think it was like terribly well proven, but that suggested that some humans have um, like in their genetics, the ability to um, like be kind of immune to that brain thing that you get if you eat another person or another person's brain. And they think that it's because certain like sects or certain whatever of our ancestors, um, they, they did, they ate each other and, and it was okay. And then, so some people have inherited that, and but most of us probably don't have that gene. I don't know if you listen to the podcast stuff. You should know. Yes, yeah. But they did a good one on cannibalism too. Did they? I'll have to look that one up. I haven't listened to them in a while. I've been listening to like a lot of independent podcasts. So, but um, they are fascinating. That whole series, like stuff your mother never told you and stuff they don't want you to know, they're all really well done. Yeah. I also listened to stuff from history class. Or yes. Or taught in history. I think yes. That one has gone back and forth. I feel like they started out with two really great hosts, and then for a while it just sounded extremely scripted. And I haven't listened to it lately, but there was a podcast I listened to a while, and I won't say the name of it though, because like I really didn't like it, and I really uh -huh. didn't like it not because of the content, but it was clearly it was scripted and it was edited to the point where it just sounded too scripted. Right, like they were just reading to you. Yeah, and I didn't really yeah. like that. that no, I like to listen to the ones with conversation, even when they get off topic like we're doing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I like that. I like to like pretend like, hey, we're all just friends hanging out and I'm listening to your conversation. <laughs> oh, our next one, though, goes to probably the biggest kidnapping place you can find these days. Yes. Well, and it fits right in with season 12 of Criminal Minds, too, because <laughs> this is kind of what was going on. This one is Felix, and that is his only name. That's the only name he gave the police. So the article says, The activity of the Mexican drug cartels are marked by a profound lack of value placed on human life. Scores of people have died in fighting between the Zeta and the Gulf cartels, the scores, and scores more innocents. Journalists, bloggers, police, migrants have been caught in the crossfire. Many police assist the cartels rather than be executed, and in many parts of Mexico, there is no law but the cartels, and there is no safety. It was in one of these regions that a 20-year-old man who identified himself as Felix to the press was picked up by a police officer while walking alone one night the beginning of a long and brutal nightmare. The officer left Felix at a Zeta cartel safe house, and for the next week he was beaten, pistol whipped, and shocked while repeated calls were made to his family for ransom. His captors tortured Gulf cartel members to death in front of him and told him he would share their fate if his family couldn't scrape together any money. They eventually wired $5,000, which wasn't enough. They demanded the same amount again. Um, amount again. 
For a couple of months, Felix was shuttled around to half a dozen safe houses, sometimes sharing small sweltering rooms with dozens of other prisoners. Beatings were regular. Deaths were common. Eventually, figuring that no more money was forthcoming, Felix was beaten within an inch of his life and dumped on the street. His recovery took months, but he lived to tell the tale, unlike so many others who disappeared from the Mexican streets and never return. Yeah, like... You don't want to, like, blanketly state that I wouldn't go to this country because of this reason or that. Right, right. But Mexico's gotten so bad with some of this stuff the, like, what, the past probably 10 to 15 years. It's mm-hmm. like, no, I'm not going there. And I've been there. I went fishing there once a long time ago. We went fishing, and it was really nice and everything. Mm-hmm. But it seems like there's nowhere. Like, I mean, there was a famous resort where a bunch of people got dragged out of the resort and kidnapped and stuff. Yikes. I mean, there. I'm sure there are places that are are much worse than others. It sounds like this guy was in a place that was like really, really bad, but it's still scary. It also sounds like the author of this place feels very similar. That like, nope, we're not going here. This is a terrible place. And Mexico City is a huge city. It's literally like like they built this one city and just kept building onto it instead of building mm-hmm. cities beside of it or something like that. Like it's a right. huge, it's a huge city. And I went to see uh, pro wrestling when we were down there too in Mexico City. It's really cool. But like I don't know, there's just too many stories of people disappearing. And mm-hmm. I was asked to go fishing down there again by a friend of mine, and I didn't want to go. And two months after that, like there was a story about people being pulled off a fishing boat and kidnapped and yeah yeah that's scary and it's also really sad because you know not everybody not even most of the people in mexico are like bad people yeah. but they're living in this it's that's that's terrifying and it's sad and so but i also don't know very much about it i mean there could be some absolutely wonderful safe places somewhere i just don't know but i did have a different thought about this which was i bet that they thought they had killed him oh yeah don't you think they wouldn't have like let him go well it's like the lady in the what was it the uh the train killer yeah 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 yeah, i bet he thought she was dead right well and probably the one where they put her in the box too like none of these people intended for this person to survive yeah, it's this maybe going back to y'all's rules on y'all's podcast about things you should never uh, do. You know, right. Because y'all are <laughs> learning to be the perfect Be a successful criminals. murderer. <laughs> and one is to make sure the person's dead when you leave them. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, no, that's definitely probably a rule of being a good murderer. I, you know, we're going to assemble all these rules and then something is going to happen and we're always going to wonder, like, did they listen to us that so we did this? We should probably, like, start assembling, like, rules to being a good person <laughs> instead. Somebody's going to be on trial and they're going to be like, where'd you learn how to do this? And I'm going to be like, crime crazy. Karen <laughs> and Jordan taught me how to do it. Every episode, they updated their list of how to get away with murder. And I should have listened to one more episode, apparently. I had a little notebook and it said crime crazy. <laughs> I even sent away and got me a sticker from him. <laughs> That's true, because I'll send stickers to anyone. Oh, this is bad, bad news. We're going to have to have a conversation about this. <laughs> we need a new plan of attack. Uh, yeah, I liked how Mike called me out as being a horrible person in that last episode, too. I don't even remember what it was about, but I said something, and he's like, oh, yeah, that's because you're a horrible person, and then he just kept going. <laughs> Well, probably. That's probably true. Uh, okay. Uh, this next one is about a child, which is horrible, and I can't. Oh, this poor baby. Okay. Um, Bahia Bakari. So if one of your worst nightmares is not being aboard a plane, crashing in the dead of night in the middle of the ocean, then come back when you've seen the first half hour of the film Castaway, and we'll talk about it again. It's hard to imagine a more terrifying experience, and very few live to tell about it, but one 14-year-old French girl did when 152 others were not so lucky. 
Eumenia Flight 626, an Airbus uh, A310, whatever that is, plunged into the Indian Ocean at around 2 in the morning of June 30th, 2009. Young Bahia Bakari was ejected from the plane, and despite having no life jacket and not being a very good swimmer, she was able to stay afloat by clinging to a piece of debris from the plane's fuselage. She would later say that there must have initially been other survivors as she could hear their voices in the chaos after the crash, but that all the voices eventually faded away. She realized she was alone as the sun rose, and it wasn't until around 11 in the morning, nine hours after the crash, that she was discovered by a civilian vessel that had been enlisted to help search for survivors. Bahia was the only one that the search effort would yield. Her mother was among the dead, but her father had not been aboard the plane. She was suffering from a fractured pelvis, a broken collarbone, among other things, and was released from the hospital three weeks later. It's just terrible. The worst part might be that she could hear other people and then just like gradually there were no other voices. Yeah, I've read stories about like children and even babies surviving like like uh, plane crashes and they being about the only Mm -hmm. one that survived. But it's terrifying. Right. Ugh. well, and it's it's awful to think. I mean, for her, she'll never get over that. Her mom was there. She like essentially witnessed all those people dying. She came close to death. Like she's never going to not have nightmares. No. But and also you would hope like my hope whenever I fly is like, okay, if we go down, I want to pass out from like air pressure changes right away and not know that I'm dying. Like I just want to I want it to be quick. Like, you know, I don't want to be aware. But it sounds like at least some of these people were still conscious after the crash and then died. And that's. Awful. Well, I remember reading a book once, and it said that that more people actually survived a crash than you think, and then they end up dying from the crash. Mm -hmm. Like, before people get there, they have wounds that couldn't be actually helped to begin with. Right. That always amazes me, the fact that, you know, more people actually survive the crash itself, and they're still alive there, like, you know, suffering or something. Right. No, I, I... Ugh. Uh, yeah, I don't like to think about that at all because I'm not afraid of flying because I figure if something goes wrong, it's going to be so fast that, like, there won't be time to be scared. And, but I, I don't like to learn about it and learn that that's not maybe the way it really happens. I'm a type of person in any situation, and it may be a little bit of the rider in my brain. I think of the worst thing that can happen in almost every situation. So when I'm on a plane, I'm constantly usually thinking, like, this can happen, this can happen, this can happen. Mm. Yeah, And that's why I don't like flying as much. It's just so stressful because I keep, like, thinking of all the things that can go wrong. That can happen. Yeah, I'm like that in, like, on a bus or in a car or if I'm not driving, like, I can actually think about that type. Yikes. Yeah, I don't think I'd stay sane if I did that. Yeah, I do it like all the time. Like like people say like, oh, this situation's you're all right. I'm like, no, this, this, and this can happen. Right. <laughs> Sitting absolutely still in the middle of your bed with nothing touching you and all the doors locked, but the roof could cave in or... Yep, believe me, I think about those things. <laughs> oh my gosh, I don't know how, I, well, maybe you're not sane. Maybe that's the secret. Maybe you're crazy. It's like the time I was on a plane once and the lady that was sitting beside me got mad because I was reading a, a book on plane crashes. Oh my gosh. And I was like, well, I'm going to think about it anyways. I might as well read it. <laughs> right, at least this will distract me from like worrying about the one that I'm in. She actually complained to the stewardess. She was that like, you were reading a book about plane crashes? <laughs> She could, you know, not read over your shoulder, and she'd probably be fine. Yeah, I mean, the stewardess was like, okay, don't look at what he's reading. And she's like, oh, it's unnerving me, it's unnerving me. And the stewardess looked at me, and I was like, I'll put it away. (laughs) Right, that's that's silly. Like, you weren't reading it out loud, right? That would be a problem. (laughs) If it was an audio book, I could have put my headphones on her ears while I was or something. (laughs) Right. Or just like take the headphones out and play at full volume. And uh, all right. Ready for number three? Moving yep. on from plane crashes. <laughs> so this list is like your list, like worst nightmare, just having the list because this is going to give you whole new things to worry about. <laughs> No, I don't think there's anything on here that I haven't, like, 
already worried about. <laughs> oh, you remember a couple years when the whole theater shooting happened? Yeah. That's one of the reasons why I don't like going to theaters, actually. Oh, my gosh. And you're finding out I'm a really weird person by me telling you this stuff. But <laughs> I used to, like, go to theaters, and I'm like, well, everybody's all vulnerable here and stuff like that. And so I'm right. like, well, that's never going to happen at a theater. And when it did, a friend of mine was like, oh, you used to talk about that. And I'm like, no, shit, that's why I used to get worried all day. <laughs> That's horrible. So the picture that I'm getting in my brain is like you go to work and then you come home and you and Mar lock all the doors and then you just don't ever leave. No, like Mar's not like that. I'm like, <laughs> oh, and you would no, I don't express it. Right. The only way you find out is if I put these scenarios in my writing or something. Right. So or I, talk about them on the podcast or, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, <laughs> because I'm not a type of person that really talks about stuff that's worrying me that much. Mm-hmm. Like I, I go help other people if they're worried in the same situation. But like I'm sitting there constantly mm-hmm. like everybody says I'm really chill and like, I'm, oh, Brian's <laughs> always calm and stuff. I'm like, no, I'm not. Nope. It's just that I'm paralyzed with fear because I've thought of all the horrible scenarios. And also I think about all the stuff and I'm like, well, there's nothing I can do. Like I don't get that's stressed. true. Like I get I don't get stressed at work if like we're overwhelmed as much and i'm like because there's nothing you can do you're overwhelmed by it so right. you just do what you can do and get it done and i'm the same right. way with like going out in a situation like well yeah somebody could kill us at any time but like i'm not gonna flip out about it right there's no way for me to keep myself safe so i'll just that's why it didn't you know. bother me that much during hurricane irma i stayed at home yeah and i was like well I'm not going to die from it because even if it was a big storm, it's hit, not hitting us directly. Right. So I was like, I could just hide under the sink or I could hide, you know, under something and I'd be protected even if a roof came off. So for the most part, I would be okay. And everybody's like, yeah, but you've had to live through it. And I was like, yeah, but, you know, I don't know. <laughs> not, not a whole lot I can do. I'm here. And, uh, yeah. Well, how about have you worried about being trapped in a creek, a freezing creek? Because this is not um, not a problem for you in Florida, I would imagine. Not in Florida. Right. This yeah. might be one of those things you don't have to worry about, Brian. Oh, about being trapped in a creek? A frozen creek. A frozen creek. No. Maybe in a couple of years when it starts to get really cold in Florida. <laughs> right. Yeah, I, I think you're going to be safe. Either that or the whole state just catches on fire because it's gotten super hot. That's more liable to happen. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So this is Paul Lassard. It must have seemed to 64-year-old Paul Lassard that circumstances had conspired to make sure he wasn't getting out of his predicament alive. He'd been out snowmobiling in the Maine wilderness alone. That just, that sentence right there, just, I see there's a problem with it. Yeah, something wrong. (laughs) Right. And he had turned the machine over. His head was pinned underneath its heavy storage rack, making it difficult to move unless he wanted to break his neck. It was very cold, even though it was the middle of the afternoon, and to make matters worse, the majority of his body was lying in a freezing creek. Then the sun began to go down, and the temperature really began to be a factor in Paul's continued survival. He was reported missing around 8.30 that night, but the search could only continue until about 2.30 in the morning due to heavy snow and wind, which, of course, Paul was having to endure. Temperatures plummeted right down to around zero degrees with the wind chill, and the search effort resumed at dawn with additional manpower and a plane. The owner of a local Arctic Cat uh, dealership and his son, part of the extensive search party, spotted the overturned snowmobile shortly before eight that morning. By that time, or by the time that Paul was freed, he had spent over 20 hours trapped in these deadly conditions. We reiterate, trapped by his head, and was obviously suffering from hypothermia and frostbite, but eventually he made a full recovery. Oh, my. (laughs) My dogs got really excited about that part of the episode. So... Yeah. Well, I was always told when I was little, because where I'm from, like, originally is, like, a cold place. Sure, we sure. We were always told, one, you never go out in the woods by yourself. Like, you never go hunting no. or fishing by yourself or anything. And two, right. it was, like, don't walk on ice. Right. Like, even if you think it's frozen, don't do it. Right. Well, yeah, because if you're around here, like, the, it's not like it's Wisconsin or Canada or somewhere where it freezes solid and you can drive a car over the lake or whatever else. Like there's never, you can't be certain that that ice is all the way frozen. Mm -mm. 
Yeah. I don't know. Well, I don't know if he was actually – it looks like it was still liquid. The water was still wet and not ice. So he must not have been riding on it, maybe just near it. Like maybe he went down like the bank and that's what made him flip. I don't know. Well, the bad thing about ice over lakes or ponds or creeks or anything like that is like you can have one part that's like got a, a pretty thick surface and then right mm-hmm. beside it can be really thin. That's right. Really, like really dangerous to do anything on those. Yeah. I, it's kind of amazing that he survived at all, especially being wet. Like I – Whatever gear he was wearing, like, that should be their advertisement. Like, Paul Lassard didn't die. He was wearing our whatever coat. Yeah. I mean, when I was little one time, like, I didn't get – how did I get water on me? Oh, I was walking when I was, like, five or six, and I had a snowsuit and everything on. But water came off the top of a house out of a gutter, and it wasn't frozen, but it was, like, freezing outside, Mm -hmm. and the water went all over me. And and I got soaked, but I was a little kid playing outside, so I didn't really think that much about it. Right. And I kept playing, and then when I finally went inside, I was soaking wet, and I was, like, freezing, and my mom and dad had to, like, you know, take, like, put hot water around me, put quilts, all that other stuff to try to cool me down, but, like, if I'd been out far away from them... Yeah. Oh, yeah. I I would probably, like, froze to death or something. Well, yeah, because especially when you're little, you don't have that much body to, like, maintain its temperature it's gonna cool off really quickly Uh, that's scary i don't think i've ever almost frozen to death fairly certain that also goes back to that one fear that a lot of people actually has dreams about where you you're under the ice like you fall Mm -hmm. you can't get get up which is a like a real problem my dad talked about that before he said that he'd known people hunting and they fell in ice and the problem wasn't really freezing from just falling in it's when you fall into the water and you'll shift over from where you fell in right and then you can't get up you can't find the hole to get back up right yeah that's that's really scary well that's a lot like being buried alive like You are alive, you're aware, you would know that, like, you could be out, but you're not, and you're going to suffocate, and there's nothing you can do, and, ugh, that's terrible. Well, the next one is something that is a fear in Florida. Yeah, so this one was crazy, um, and super tragic, and it's another child, which is horrible. Um, so this is Jake Finkbonner. So, um, let's see. In February 2006, five-year-old, oh my gosh, five-year-old, Jake Finkbonner was playing in a peewee league basketball game, the last game of the season. In the final minute of that game, he was pushed from behind, and he split his lip on the base of the basketball hoop. It would have been just his first fat lip, except that the surface of this base contained a deadly surprise, the bacteria strep A. And within the next couple of days, Jake's stunned parents were listening to doctors tell them that their son was probably going to die. Strep A is a flesh-eating bacteria, and and it entered through the open wound on Jake's mouth and literally began to consume his face. His doctors described it as being like lighting one end of a parchment paper, and you just watch it spread from that corner very fast, and you're stamping it on one side, and it's flaming up on another, almost as if you could watch it moving in front of your eyes. Jake's family, being Catholic, had last rites administered and asked for friends and family to play to or to pray to Blessed Kateri, oh gosh, Tekakwitha, I don't know, uh, a Mohawk Indian who converted to Catholicism um, because Jake is half, uh, is it Lumi, Lumi Indian? Anyway, unbelievably, the infection slowed and then stopped. It has taken countless skin grafts and other surgical procedures to restore Jake's face, but flesh-eating bacterial infection is not something that ordinarily just subsides unless the patient is dead. Many patients die within 24 hours of a diagnosis. Jake's recovery was unlikely enough that the Kateri who believe who, uh, oh my goodness, that we're just going to cut this whole section. I can't read. <laughs> All right. Jake's recovery was unlikely enough that Katiri, who was beatified, beatified, I don't know, in 1980 is now being considered by the Catholic Church for sainthood, said recovery potentially being the miracle that qualifies her. So, yeah, that it's terrifying because this was just 
he wasn't in a dangerous, life-threatening situation at all. And it seems like with these flesh-eating bacteria cases, it usually ends up being that. It's somebody stumbles and, like, cuts their, it gets, like, a little cut on their knee or something like that. Right. And they get it. And it's like, right. And then it's just, you should never have died. You're not concerned about it. Like, even if it gets red or it, you know, you're just not worried because it's just a little tiny cut. And everybody gets those all the time. Yeah, especially kids. Like, you don't think, like, because kids are always getting bruised and cut. And... Right. Yeah, this one is horrible, and I it's crazy. I'm really, really glad that he survived, obviously, but I just can't imagine being those parents. Like, Yeah, there was a, a case with a, a young girl, I think it was a few years ago, where they had amputated like both her arms and one of her legs, and then they thought after that it stopped the spread of it, but it was like... <sighs> It's bad that you have to go through all that, and it's basically like somebody chopping you up. Yeah, just trying to stop it. Well, yeah, and on his face, there wouldn't even have been that option. I I can see, like, if you cut your foot and then diagnosed it early enough that if it's not in your blood and it's not, like, maybe you can stop it. You're going to lose something, and it's going to be life-altering, but maybe you could stop it, but... There was no. And this is somebody, like, normally if you get a cut and it's, like, infected a little bit, you just think, like, oh, it's going to be sore for a while. I'll put stuff on it now and it won't be a bad problem. Right. Little hydrogen peroxide. Keep it clean and dry. Yeah. That's it. And to be told that, like, oh, you probably got 24 hours and that's it. So you go completely healthy to 24 hours. Right. Yeah. Well, and looking at his picture, like, you can tell he's had lots of things done to his face like he must have lost that whole side of his face it looks like and they've like done skin grafts to put it back he probably compared to what it was like when they were told that he was gonna die i bet that he looks amazing now oh yeah but but still i mean that's still affecting his life now as well like he looks like he's probably a teenager that's not an easy thing yeah, if I, I might be mistaken in it with this, but I think I read that, and this comes from the case that I have, like, several friends that are nurses, and they mm-hmm. keep sending me weird shit. <laughs> like, they're always sending me <laughs> stuff like, oh, you should put this in a book, or you should put this in a story. And I'm like, okay, thank you. Give me nightmares. Um, right, right. But, I didn't need anything else to worry about. Didn't you listen? <laughs> but I think stuff like this is kind of like uh, cancer in the fact that it can flare up again later. Oh, yikes. I hope not. So it can be in your system and you think it's beat and then it can flare up again later because there's not much they can really do about it. In the right. Run. So, like, that's another thing that would be scary if you, you know that. And the doctors probably tell you that. They do it with people with cancer. Like, you yeah. got to be vigil because it could come back. That would be something that would be hanging over your head for the rest of your life, too. Sure. Especially from five years old. Like, that's that's your whole life. You don't remember anything before five, or not very much. So that's your entire life. Yeah, Mars says every story I had when I was kids, like when I was five years old. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, before that, you probably remember stories about yourself more than you remember actually what happened. Yeah, that's true. So, Although I swear I remember a couple of dreams from before that age, but my parents tell me I'm crazy, so, you know. All right, last one. Um, this one is kind of incredible and I kind of love it. Like at least we're going to end on a really cool note. So this is Timothy Brown, a name I can say. Um, and in the late 1980s and early nineties, an HIV diagnosis was a death sentence. Some early drugs could slow its progression to AIDS, but nothing could stop it. And once AIDS manifested in a patient, the end was nigh and it wouldn't be very long. This is no longer so, especially with early diagnosis and modern drugs. But when Timothy Brown was diagnosed with HIV in 1995, retroviral medications were still at a point where they could usually extend life, but not indefinitely. Brown responded well to treatment, but became ill in 2005 and was diagnosed with leukemia. This dude has the worst luck. Chemotherapy made his already compromised immune system more susceptible to infection, and then he developed pneumonia during his second round. During the third, there was a bout with sepsis, and his doctors realized that the chemotherapy was likely going to kill him. That's when Dr. Jiro Hutter simply decided to take a shot at a procedure that no one had ever tried before. 
he gave Brown a stem cell transplant to treat his leukemia, but instead of choosing a matching donor, he chose one with a special and desired quality, what is known as CCR5 mutation, a rare genetic disorder that makes one's cells resistant to HIV. Not only did the transplant take, it had all of the desired effects. It cured the leukemia and unbelievable, unbelievably the HIV as well. That is to say, Timothy Brown was once infected with HIV and leukemia, two diseases that are lethal to the vast, the vast majority of the time, and now he is infected with neither. He hasn't taken retroviral drugs since the day of the procedure, and while the treatment he underwent is too risky and expensive to be standard, he is nevertheless now referred to as the Berlin patient, the first known person to be cured of HIV. Yeah, this is a good positive story. Yeah. I, I mean, at first, like, oh my goodness, HIV, leukemia, pneumonia, sepsis, like, he should not have been alive. No, uh, and like, a lot of people don't know this, but if you know anything about it, like, a HIV and AIDS don't kill you, it's like pneumonia and stuff like that. Right, it kills you and stuff. right. But. Yeah, but no, he just, and, and it's not even that he's like, still alive, or he's still doing well, it's that he is, like, he just doesn't have those things anymore. Like, he's just good now. Yeah, I mean, like, excuse me, I burped a little. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, I had a cousin who died of leukemia, so I know oh, that yeah. that alone is like like a vicious disease to have. Yes. Like, yeah. The treatment it, it is even worse sometimes than like like the disease itself, like right chemotherapy and stuff. So he survived like two big things pretty much. Yeah. Well, and then just to be cured, like that's that's amazing. And his picture, he looks pretty pleased with himself. <laughs> yeah, <I laughs> but mean, you know, he deserves to be. Yeah, that's a that's a happy story, and like, um, yeah, and today like there's more drugs for it, and like they keep people to going from HIV to AIDS. I mean, like famous cases, uh, Magic Johnson, mm -hmm. like, the basketball player, he had HIV, but he's never gotten AIDS because he has the drugs that they keep right. him going into that. Well, and he's lucky enough to be able to afford them, yeah, and they're real expensive drugs. And stuff. Yeah, but it's too bad that this treatment that they talk about like isn't something that you can just do for people like how great would that be if we had a really good way of getting of, of doing some sort of whatever you need to do genetically so that we could just cure leukemia and cure hiv and just that well, would be so great also they gave him something that was very experimental that sometimes that happens yes. and like people just die from it too sure well but i don't think he really had anything to lose right oh, i mean no. he he was pretty much there. It's like when you have people travel to other countries and stuff that have uh, not, like, I don't say medical ethics, but they don't have as many rules about what you can right. give people. So, like, desperate people will travel to Mexico or travel to places in Europe to take things because they basically have a death sense, so it really doesn't right. matter. Right, right. It's either this or, you know, that's it. Yeah. Well, that is a good one to end on because at least it's happy and it didn't involve any children. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's what amazes me is like anybody with kids that could do like like any kind of podcast with kids stuff in it. <laughs> I know. No, the kids are rough. And there have definitely been stories. Like I think we've done a couple with kids um, like on Crime Crazy and then there were a couple in here with kids. I just have to like not – think about it because like when I started thinking about that five-year-old like my kid's gonna be five in December I can't think about that we're just gonna pretend like that doesn't exist and I'm never gonna think about it again so mm -hmm.